Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and I am joined by a very, very special guest today, Ed Einan. And I have to say, before we turn the time over to you, Ed, I really appreciate the opportunity that I had to work with you there in the Salt Lake Organizing Committee and on a couple of projects afterwards. Uh, I consider you a mentor. I learned a lot from you and I appreciate your patience with me and with all of us there in the Salt Lake Organizing Committee as we did our work. And it's an honor to have you on our podcast today. So, Ed, welcome. How are you? Thank you. Good, Christian. I'm grateful to be a part of this excellent uh, project that you're doing. This is awesome what you're doing. Thank you. Well, that's very kind of you to say. I'm enjoying it immensely, especially during this crazy pandemic that we're all suffering through. And I want to ask, um, where are you joining us from today and what are you doing? Well, today I'm in Irvine, California. Uh, after the games, I uh, Steve Clark was instrumental in helping me get lined up with the Cheesecake Factory. So I spent uh, about five years there. And then uh, the last almost 13 years, I've spent uh, time at KSL Resorts. We were headquartered in La Quinta, California for a number of years. And just last October, we moved to Irvine. So we're in a brand new office building that then quickly got shut down with the coronavirus. So from time to time, I shuttle back and forth from our home in Fruit Heights, Utah, to our home here in Irvine. And today I happen to be in Irvine. I'll be in Salt Lake City tomorrow morning uh, up in our home in, in Fruit Heights. And you are joining from an office. It looks like you're in the office. Yes, actually in the office. I've got my little uh, bandana that I use as a mask uh, where we're kind of in a semi-lockdown mode again in Orange County here. Right. So you're definitely in the minority of our guests because most people have been joining from home. But I do want to ask you about air travel. Um, how have you found air travel in this uh, COVID time? Yeah, I've, I've flown uh, several flights, uh, Delta and Southwest. Delta was shooting for 60% capacity. Everybody must wear a mask. And they usually try to block out a seat between individuals that are not related. If you're related, you can sit together. Uh, Southwest, on the other hand, was 67% they were targeting. It seemed to me on a couple of flights that it was a little more than that, perhaps. But I have uh, done a lot of flights back and forth between Salt Lake and Orange County. But I also did a cross country to Detroit and then on to um, Orlando and back. So uh, all times were without incident. And uh, I think air travel is safe and clean and worth doing. How is it wearing the mask for an extended period of time? Do you used to it or is it irritating to be sit there, particularly on a flight to Orlando, for example? That's a long flight. Uh, to have to sit there and wear a mask. I found that though the requirements are there, there's not a lot of mask police. Uh, you know, we run resorts and we try to do the same. We try to suggest and confirm that that's important. But when someone chooses not to, there's either a gentle reminder or uh, nothing. And, and so I think it's just kind of courtesy to each other, but um, not a lot of enforcement at times. Interesting. Well, Let's talk about the hospitality industry for a moment. I'm in the event space still, having failed to escape the orbit of the games on a number of occasions. <laughs> and uh, it's definitely been severely impacted by the virus. And hospitality has too. How has KSL Resorts managed the, the challenges associated with operating in this crazy, unprecedented environment? 
With most of our properties, which uh, kind of span the globe in a way, we've got uh, properties in Asia Pacific and Thailand and Fiji and Guam and Mauritius and uh, other places, but also a lot in Hawaii. We've got about 25 properties in the Hawaiian Islands. And uh, most of the properties have gone through the process of closing down and then reopening. However, our Hawaiian properties are lagging. Uh, there are decisions made in Hawaii that keep them from opening. Uh, you may have heard of quarantines, anybody who comes from outside the area. So uh, flights are dramatically down and uh, many of our properties remain closed. We hope to the next month or two be opening some of them, but it has impacted us uh, significantly. Well, no doubt. And I hope we can find a solution to these uh, challenges that we're facing soon and and get people back up on their feet and up and running again, and we can start to enjoy each other socially. Yeah, we've, we've experienced cabin fever ourselves, which is why we try to do a couple of trips just to kind of relax. All right, well, let's relax and enjoy reminiscing about the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic and Paralympic Games. What I typically do with people is we start from the very beginning or maybe even before the beginning. And uh, so perhaps you can tell us your story, Ed. What were you doing before you joined the Salt Lake Organizing Committee? And how did you find yourself working for SLOC? Yeah, good question. Um, I was working, uh, running HR for Matrix Marketing, which became Convergis. We did a series of acquisitions that went from about $100 million in revenue to over a billion in my six and a half years. Um, it, it was, it, the story actually starts before then because when I was on the East Coast with uh, Golden Corral and later American Woodmark, uh, our kids were getting to the age where it was either move back West to family and start their high school years or to stay in the East. And we had at one point uh, had a, uh, I had a desire to look what might be available there in, in the West. And of course we didn't have internet at those times. And, and uh, this would have been in the early nineties. So I went to a bookstore and I opened up uh, a book about uh, recruiting agencies from around the country. And I actually called one in Utah. I was thinking we wanted to be in either California or Utah. And uh, the, the group I called in Utah is STM and Associates. And that was the only one I ever called out of the book, but I did call and over the phone, I gave information and they called back a few days later and wanted to know if I wanted a job, a consideration in New Mexico. They were a mining company of all things in terms of the, the search work that they did for mining executives and so natural resources, which was odd, but that's all I could see to, to call at the time. And I quickly said, no, that wouldn't be something where I'd want to live or not necessarily what I want to do. And I, and I thought that was the end of it. When I did come west, I went with a company up in uh, the Ogden area and we had uh, offices around other places and so forth. That's matrix marketing. And um, towards the end, we were starting to consolidate as we got bigger and bigger. We were starting to, uh, even though I was a corporate officer, I wasn't at the corporate office, which was in Cincinnati. I was in Utah. And in an effort to bring the groups together, I figured that that would be require a move to Cincinnati, which I did not want to do. So out of nowhere came a call from STM and Associates, a group that I had talked to seven years earlier and didn't really do anything. And ironically, it was on the second to the last day 
of the individual who called me, her career at that agency was over after 11 years. So one of the last things she did was somehow grab my resume from the bottom of the pile and called. And one of the reasons they were engaged is because Frank Jocklick, who was the CEO, had a mining background. He was heavily involved with Kennecott Copper and other natural resources groups. And that was a group he was comfortable with as he was searching for my role. So the idea that uh, an obscure resume from seven years earlier would be pulled up by a guy who specializes in natural resources and minerals was uh, unusual at the best. And, uh, you know, uh, as it turned out, um, I began interviewing and nine days later had an offer. In fact, several of uh, the folks that uh, ended up at the Olympics, uh, people like uh, Darren Hughes and, and um, Nancy Hitt and uh, others, were at the uh, at an event. We were at a golf event, and I got faxed into the clubhouse. It was up in uh, it was Wolf Creek up in Eden, Utah, and I got faxed to the clubhouse my offer. So I passed that around. And uh, one of the things that in deciding whether to come to the Olympics, I knew it was a four-year stint at that point. So I asked our CFO, who was very unemotional about things, when I worked for uh, Matrix Marketing and Convergence. Uh, Doug Jones. And uh, I said, Doug, I've got this offer. What do you think? And he started tearing up. This was an unemotional guy. And he says, you have to do that. He says, the greatest thing in my life, with all due respect to his family and his wife, I guess, was his time at the 1980 Lake Placid Games, where he was a volunteer. And he says, you have to do this. And uh, the combination of uh, the right timing and uh, the, the coincidence of all this, as well as his uh, remarks, uh, led me to believe that we're in. So I interviewed for, with the board. I interviewed with uh, Dave Johnson, Shelley Thomas, Mark Tanner, Bob Garf, Don Cash, Joe Cannon, people like that. And nine days later, I had the offer at the clubhouse. I passed it around, my offer. And everybody said, oh, you got to do this. And uh, that was it. So uh, I interviewed with... Um, Frank Jocklick, he was assisted by a guy from PepsiCo, uh, Dan Paxton, and uh, they made an offer that I couldn't refuse, and I thought uh, this, would, this would be fun. That's an amazing story, Ed. Have you ever thought back at those series of coincidences and wondered to yourself, what if that recruiter hadn't gone to the bottom of the pile? What if I hadn't gone and talked to them seven years ago? What if uh, the company that I was talking about wasn't a mining company? I mean, it's just a series of crazy coincidences that led you to Salt Lake. Yeah, that was part of it uh, to suggest that maybe this was the right thing to do. Yeah. So take a hint from the universe. (laughs) This is what you're supposed to be doing. Exactly. All right. So uh, just to make sure that everybody understands, why don't you describe your role in the organizing committee and just when it was that you actually came on board? Sure. Uh, You know, I like to think of the games in phases that, you know, the games are awarded seven years before the host city puts on the games, right? So we were awarded in uh, 1995 for games to be held in 2002. And I think an organizing committee goes through various phases. I, I named them as six over the years. And I don't know that too many people are suitable for all those phases. So you get turnover, you get different players. Uh, I think the original, which I was not a part of the phase, was the bid committee phase. 
I came on in what I would call phase two, which was the initial OCOG, you know, the Olympic Committee Organizing Group, uh, OCOGs they call them. I was in that initial phase, and then there's an advanced phase where you start fleshing out. Then there's the venueization, you're getting ready to go to the venues. Then there's the game times, and then there's the dissolution. So I was privileged uh, to go through five of the six phases. I was employee number 60, uh, and just by comparison, Mitt was employee number 200 on a workforce that if you figure all the seconded and contractors and everybody, it was close to 50,000, including volunteers and so on. So I came in um, in early 1998. I was hired by Frank, uh, and he's called Frank, but his name is actually Gunter Franz uh, Joklik. And he had been the bid committee um, volunteer chairman, and then he was uh, actually um, made the uh, uh, chairman of the board, and then he became the uh, president and CEO when Tom Welch stepped down. And it was a few months after that that he hired me. So I was actually hired by Frank Joklik. And um, there, was also, there was already a, a really great individual in the HR department. That was Ron Mortensen. I want to give him a shout out that he ended up uh, really focusing on the traditional HR pieces like policies, procedures, uh, compensation benefits. And, and because of his background, did visa work as well. So he actually beat me to it. But uh, yeah, I came on in uh, early 1998 and uh, worked with Frank for about nine months or so. And, um, you know, as, as we know, there was a scandal that hit. Um, but I, I want to kind of just come back to the early people that a lot of these names may be familiar to our group, but some of them may not be. And I always think there's a value in giving credit those who weren't able to finish the games for any kind of number of reasons, but who really did some great foundational work. Those who did finish the games uh, certainly got well-deserved credit for doing, as many said, the best games ever. But I want to talk about just briefly the group that uh, my colleagues, when I first joined with Frank, uh, Kelly Flint, uh, he certainly was there for quite a bit. He had the, uh, at the time, I think he actually had marketing as well as legal. Dave, Dave Johnson was a uh, senior vice president for the games. Uh, Mark Tanner was the senior vice president of finance administration. Shelly Thomas, who was a, uh, she was in the SVP spot for communications and public affairs. Myself, having initially HR and ultimately got international relations as well. Now I'd, I'd probably suggest there were probably two or three others in that uh, primary group that reported to Frank. Um, in those early stages, uh, I'd mentioned Grant Thomas for venues, Will, Bill Wagner with operations. They were both from Bechtel and were closely associated. And of course, Cindy Gillespie with Federal Relations. So those were kind of Frank's team when I first joined. And, uh, you know, something happened to many of them. Like Frank, uh, he, you know, one of the things I thought he did so well was he knew that we needed a very detailed budget to pull all this off. So he engaged Bechtel for I believe about three quarters of a million dollars to put a detailed budget together that allowed for easier edits later and refinement that certainly was needed by guys like Mitt and Fraser and uh, Brett Hopkins in, in those roles. Um, I've always thought it's easier to edit than to create and the creation of that initial budget was very well done and I give lots of credit to Frank. We did have an opportunity to honor him and his wife 
with some of the folks that worked early on with Frank uh, at a function at the New Yorker. And he was very privileged, he said, and blessed to have had the, that recognition because he certainly didn't get that from the rest of the world. Um, but I do think he played a big role and wanted to mention that. Mark Tanner, also similarly, he was our CFO, and I thought he did a lot of great work on early uh, board interaction, especially with the one that uh, involved uh, our group uh, more closely, which was uh, headed by Don Cash of Questar. He was the chairman of the HR Compensation Committee, where a lot of sensitive things associated with leaders and compensation and, and uh, uh, transactions with employees occurred in a smaller group. Uh, um, Bob Garf was part of that and uh, Joe Cannon and uh, other folks. Uh, uh, I think Greta Peterson, yeah, there was others, but uh, Mark said, did a lot of groundwork with that group and I thought he did a real good job. And then there's Dave Johnson. Dave uh, helped get the bid. Uh, he was a later acquitted of wrongdoing. I think that's important for people to know uh, but he made a lot of important preliminary decisions, uh, along with Kathy Priestrologer, about sport operations that were important ultimately for the games. Uh, Shelly Thomas, uh, she was a local celebrity. She was a big time anchor for Channel 5. And, and I thought she did a great job with the scandal, uh, with during the scandal, with the media frenzy that, that erupted. And uh, she also put together a really group, a good group of employees that who did see the games through. and. Uh, talk about a few of them in a bit, but, you know, I think Bill Wagner, uh, he was at first a Bechtel consultant, did a lot of good work on the budget and later hired as a, as an executive for Slock, but did not finish the games, but he was a good guy. He was a candidate for the COO spot at one point, and he contributed a lot to the games and operations and the overall budget. And of course, the ones that did see it through that were part of that original group, Cindy Grant and Kelly, all made it and they were deservedly uh, awarded for, for their contributions as well. But uh, in, in terms of my team, I, I feel like it was the best team I ever had. You know, it was just an amazing group of people. I'm going to say that slow so nobody out here in my office hears that. But uh, I thought we could have done anything. And one of the things that uh, I mentioned, Ron Mortensen, he did a great job. There were other folks, Tammy Beaven that worked with him and Cheryl Dorfler Lake and some of those that did all of the the real hard stuff, and 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 he was a he was an excellent guy to allow me to come in and and manage that whole function and other things. So big shout out to him. I was also uh, extremely fortunate to have Darren Hughes with me. He was my right hand man and uh, did a lot of wonderful things and continues on with the games, uh, as you know, Christian, and, and just a wonderful guy. Uh, also Nancy Hitt, she was a project manager over special volunteer programs. Those were. Uh, two people that followed me quickly from the old company into the into Slock. Uh, I literally had over 200 uh, people that wanted to follow from uh, my former company. And after I hired three, uh, the third one was Dave Busser, who ultimately became our CIO. Um, <clears throat> I was told by a legal firm that if I hired anybody more, I was going to see some <laughs> legal repercussions. So uh, I didn't. And then Brett Hopkins called me and I said, Brett, you know, I'd love to have you here, but I can't just recruit you. You have to go ask your bosses if it's okay. 
And of course, uh, Brent then came, he had been my analyst years earlier, but was in a key financial role in France. And Brent did join us because his boss said it was okay. Uh, you know, and, and so those were some key folks in. Steve Clark, what a great hire Steve was. Uh, found him as a regional head of HR uh, for Pizza Hut. Dan Paxton, our consultant, had told me about Steve and we hired him and he was spectacular. He's done some amazing things after as well. Along the way, there were contributors of early on that didn't finish with me, Ann Furlong, Diane Hesliff, wanted to give them a shout out. But we later locked in on uh, people like Jenny Wilson, who has done some pretty amazing things, but she was our superb head of volunteer retention and operations. Carol Harris later uh, as well, excellent head of training, really enjoyed uh, having that team. And uh, of course, I wanna give a special shout out to a duo from IT that weren't really on our payroll that joined our team on the 13th floor. Uh, one gentleman by the name of Christian Napier and the other was Lisa King who uh, did so much to uh, customize an approach to our HR database and game staffing that had not worked at previous games and yet did work at ours. Um, I, 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 that was the HR team essentially, but I picked up um, some additional folks, uh, when Mitt joined later, he asked if I would pick up some of the functions from Dave Johnson. So I was happy to do so. And uh, later, when Shelly Thomas uh, resigned, he asked I pick up some of there. So I picked up actually four additional functions. Uh, uh, NOC Services, which was led by Ina Grenis, a spectacular professional who you almost didn't have to worry about anything. She was just the pro. And likewise, uh, Verena Rasmussen over the IOC protocol, Olympic family function, just two real significant pros. And later from Shelley, picked up the education function from and Judy Stanfield, just a dream uh, colleague and just a superb person. Uh, the world loves Judy Stanfield. And then a, a very difficult function, office management services. You know, Andrea Fraley had her hands full getting people space and office and so forth. It was tricky, but she did a great job. And Mitt had also asked, I look at taking on ceremonies and look of the games. And I thought, I have no ability in this area. And so I encouraged Mitt to consider it that he would do a whole lot better than I ever would. And so that's why he ended up with ceremonies and look of the games. And he had Scott Givens and that whole great team working with him and they pulled off some amazing stuff. So I'm glad it went that way, not my way. But uh, yeah, that was pretty much my team. And like I say, we had a couple of changes, but for the most part, we stayed as a, as a, as a team. And I, and I love that team. Well, thank you very much for the kind shout out to Lisa <laughs> and I for adopting us onto the 13th floor. We thoroughly enjoyed our experience there. And you're right, it felt very familial. The working environment was was very friendly. It was very warm and inviting. And so I credit you for helping to create that. I want to go back to those early days when you come on working in this new thing, this Olympic Games. Um, what's the approach that you take to develop a strategy for people? You know, how are you going to grow this? What things would you outsource versus what things would you insource and so on and so forth? So why don't you tell us a little bit about the human resources strategy that you crafted and implemented there in Salt Lake? Well, it kind of started early on at a what we call a coordination commission 
uh, you know, IOC members from prior games and IOC members themselves, uh, you know, they come at time from time to time coaching the OCOG as to how to best uh, put on the games, those reports and so forth. And on what's one such uh, coordination commission event, there was a dinner at Frank Jocklick's house. And, you know, we were milling around before the dinner began talking to people. And all of a sudden I got tugged by um, the CEO of Lillehammer's Olympic Games, Gerhard Heiberg. And he insisted that I sit with him that night. And I thought, well, that's just kind of him. And he says, no, I really have a key message for you. And he basically uh, coached me and counseled me the whole dinner to where I almost, I almost didn't eat the dinner, but I was feverishly taking notes. But his key takeaway was, you have the responsibility of the most important part of the games. I thought, oh, come on, think of all the other critical things. And he says, no, no, they're all important too. But he says, how the workforce goes will determine how your games go. And he says, you have an obligation responsibility to do it better than, you know, it's ever been done. And we did a pretty great job. I thought that was interesting because looking at Gerhardt's background, he's, he's not a people guy per se. He's an industrialist. I think he had some engineering in his background, but he concluded uh, that that was the most important part, uh, which was certainly not going to just be my responsibility. It's going to be all of our responsibility. But I heard that loud and clear. Um, we actually engaged Peter Vonnegut, his COO, to help us with that process, along with Dan Paxton, again, from PepsiCo, to kind of help formulate. But the one thing I knew is that you had to have a very simple mission. You know, I've been with companies where they get consultants and put a lot of things on the walls. And, you know, it's hit or miss if people really fulfill that. And so at my Golden Corral experience years earlier, I knew that missions could be very simple. Our mission at Golden Crow was making pleasurable dining affordable, four words. So in like manner, I thought, well, what if we started out with a high aspiration of best games workforce ever? And that was our, our mantra. That was our mission, is that we would do the things, everything we could do to influence, to help, to lead, whatever, uh, to get the best games workforce ever. And one of the things we did early on structurally is volunteers used to be quite separate from uh, the workforce, the, the paid workforce and so forth. And there was all kinds of other kinds of workforce uh, elements. There was seconded folks, contracted folks, independent contractors and so forth. So what I remember early on working with Steve and Darren, we put a wheel together, the employment wheel. And rather than say there were different kinds of recruiting there would be one massive effort for recruitment that would involve all these different elements or types of, of workers. And I think that was helpful, not to separate recruiting from volunteers and the other. How do you build a great workforce? And I kind of boiled it down to five traits, I think. And one is just to select winners. Do what you can to make sure that you're hiring. I think there's nothing more important in a manager's life than to hire the right people. And we thought, how could we assist in that as others make the hires? We didn't hire everybody, uh, but we wanted to influence good hires. And so we, we early on kind of made the rounds and got input from all the departments and ended up with six traits. Um, I don't know if you remember those six traits, but uh, we ended up uh, putting that into our recruitment package. Um, and I'll just re remind what those were. One was stamina or being a hard worker. 
the second was positive attitude, being enthusiastic and being warm. Third was a reliable person who was punctual and was a team player. Fourth was uh, we stole it shameless, shamelessly out of uh, um, the UCLA basketball coach, John Wooden, where he said poise under pressure would be important. And that certainly was. Number five was solve problems, make decisions. And the sixth one was honesty, integrity. So we, as a group, laid out what those traits would be as we tried to select winners, which was that first key to the great workforce. Then the right fit, putting them in the place where they could best use their skill and knowledge and their natural behaviors. And then to make the messages simple, clear, principle-based so that expectations of these talented people would be very clear. When we say best games workforce ever, we were looking for the very best. And when we said, hey, it's time to train, let's use simple acronyms, charge, warmth. When we talk about the culture, fit cap, so we can remember that and emphasize fun along the way. I think the last two, just trust them, let them go. Uh, You know, these are people that either had experience or they didn't have experience for prior games, but they had what it took to learn the job and to put it together. And you had to trust these experts that were around and even these people that weren't games experts, but were excellent uh, leaders. And the last one is just appreciate them. Let them know you care, let them know they matter, show them appreciation. And I think that was the key that we tried to live by to build this workforce that was going to be the best games workforce ever. I think the other thing, um, if I can, uh, on that, Christian, is one of the things we studied, we studied what other games did a lot to try to figure out what they did well, what they didn't do well. And one of the things we noticed in two or three of the games of the other OCOGs was that the whole emphasis on the, the right diversity was important. And we thought that too, but we figured that we would probably not be perfect at it. Nobody is. So we thought, well, who would criticize us? And we, uh, we had the idea that let's put together a workforce advisory committee to put the workforce together that was comprised of those who might have the greatest concerns if we didn't do it right. So uh, we wanted to start with a diverse workforce and a strong workforce, but we wanted to have those people who represented these ethnic groups and special segments of the population to be a part of that, not not uh, potential critics, but potential people that could solve it. So we had people like Janetta Williams from the NAACP that sat and regularly had meetings with us to how to properly recruit and how to find the right kind of diversity. Larry Blackhair, representing uh, over 400 Native American tribes in the U.S. Uh, Jorge Archuleta, who was representing the Hispanic Latino community. We had Reverend France Davies, Davis uh, representing the non-LDS organization. We had Ray and Jeanette Black Beckham representing the LDS uh, church. And we had uh, Bob Backman representing senior citizens. We had Joanne Seguini representing the mayors. I think she was the mayor of one of the Salt Lake communities. I can't remember which, but uh, she was, and she recently passed away, I understand. But uh, we wanted to make sure the, the, the cities were represented. So every six months or so, we'd hold a press conference to talk about very, transparently what a reporter on our progress was for hiring and diversity. And every time a reporter or somebody attending the press conference would ask a question about a particular category that we might be a little short in, it was wonderful because I would turn to the representative of that particular category and say, hey, Janetta, 
could you speak to that question? And uh, they owned it and it was wonderful. And they um, would talk about our efforts to close those gaps. Uh, we were aligned on diversity and uh, it turned out, I think, as well as we could have hoped. So I think those were some things, some factors early on in establishing a foundation of you know, how to build that great workforce and to have our eye on the prize that we were gonna have the best games workforce ever. And I think we did. Um, if I may, just one more, the, there was uh, actually, I've got four pages of quotes from IOC members and from uh, NBC, you know, uh, the, the, who, who are such a huge player in these games in terms of the revenues they provide with the, um, the media revenues. but. Um, you know, talking about these were the best games ever. And I just thought it was amazing how um, we kind of had a report card that uh, when people think back on the games, I think of a lot of us think about what wonderful colleagues we had and what great people we had a chance to work with. And uh, I think it was noticed by the world. They stepped up and said these were, Dick Eversall, I know specifically said, these are without a doubt, winter or summer, the best games ever held. Well, that's high praise, but I think a lot of that was because of the quality of the people uh, that joined the, the group and that we were, I believe, uh, the best games workforce ever. Well, I'm biased, but I would second that motion uh, without hesitation. And I appreciate the opportunity to be a part of that incredible workforce. And even talking with many of our colleagues here on these podcasts, you know, they really feel like the games here were a bit of a lightning in the bottle moment. And, you know, many of them, myself included, uh, regarded as perhaps the pinnacle of our careers. I remember I talked about this uh, on the podcast with Darren after the games were over. We just looked at each other like, are we going to find a better job? Because this job, this job rocks. This is really awesome. And we were a little bit concerned, you know, <laughs> what are we going to do now? Here we are in our, you know, early thirties or whatever, <laughs> thinking, is this it, you know, does it get any better? And in some respects it has not, you know, I haven't found another organization that really replicated what we had there in Salt Lake city. So tremendous credit to you and all the leadership. I'm looking at our time and we've covered an awful lot of memories, but I know we're just scratching the surface on this. Uh, so I think what we're going to need to do is break this into multiple episodes, because I know you've got a lot of memories that you want to share. So if it's all right with you, maybe we do a bit of a break here. But before we do that break, I kind of want to ask about songs, because on, I think it was on Facebook. Or I can't remember, LinkedIn or Facebook. You came up with, I don't know how many songs. Well, you got to talk about this one. You got to talk about that one. So so I actually, if, if we're going to do multiple segments, I want to go, I want to talk about a song on each of these segments. So Ed, if you would do us the pleasure, what's a song or a musical group, an artist that reminds you of that time period when you were working there at the Salt Lake Organizing Committee? Gosh, a lot of great songs, but uh, I'd have to go with uh, America, uh, you know, the old They're Coming to America song by Neil Diamond. Uh, you may recall in one of our all slot meetings that Dick Eversall showed up and it was a special tape. He didn't want it leaving his hands and going anywhere because um, it was a special tape. But, um, you know, I just think the, the images behind that and how moving that video was and that song in the background 
their coming to America was just really inspirational to me. And and I, I have to say, I did end up with that tape, so I haven't showed it, but I look at it once in a while, and it's a, it's a wonderful. So every time I hear Neil Diamond sing that, I can't help but think of the games. Yeah, that one to this day gives me goosebumps whenever I hear it, that Coming to America song. So that's a great selection, Neil Diamond, Coming to America. So what I'd like to do is continue this conversation in a subsequent episode. Ed, thank you so much for giving us all of these memories so far. I'm looking forward to the additional memories and stories that you have to share with us. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast, and we'll catch you again soon. Ed, thanks. Thank you, Christian. Been a blast.